0: Hello, and welcome to this teaching from Calvary Albuquerque. We're excited to hear from our special guest speaker, Dr. James Emery White, who is the senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. We trust God uses this message to strengthen your relationship with Him. And when He does, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. At and if you'd like to support the ministry of Calvary Albuquerque financially, you can give online securely at calvaryabq.org slash give. Now we invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4 as Dr. White begins the message, Becoming a Maker of History. Thank
1: you. Well, I think very highly of your pastor in this church, it so it's an honor and a privilege for me to be here. Uh, let's jump right in. Somebody sent me something off of the internet the other day. You know that little poem called Footprints in the Sand? The one that tells the story of a man who had a dream. That he saw his life in terms of a walk with God along a beach. And there were two sets of footprints in the sand. One was his and the other was God's. And then he noticed that during the most difficult times of his life, there was just one set of footprints. So he asks God about it and God tenderly tells him that those were the times he was carried. Remember that one? First time you read it, you go, aw. Second time you read it, yeah, it's just okay. Third time you read it, you're ready to gag because it's so cheesy. Somebody finally freshened it up, and I got it for you. See if you like it. One night, I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. (laughs) Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. (laughs) Now, what if that version is closer to the truth than the original and if it is how can we position ourselves before god so that we become swept up into the great redemptive drama that god is enacting on the stage of this planet the great revolution that was set in motion by christ himself for reclaiming the world because that's god's call on your life to seek god's kingdom Which means to devote yourself to what God wants and what God cares about and what matters most to God. It means finding out what God is doing and then willingly joining with Him to do it. It means to bring your life into alignment with His agenda and then letting that become your agenda. And that agenda is very clear. First and foremost, it's reaching out to a lost and dying world with the one and only message that can transform someone's entire eternity. A mission so clear that when Jesus spelled it out for 2,000 years since, we can only call it the Great Commission. But within that Great Commission comes a cultural commission to work toward the kingdom taking hold on this planet in governments and institutions in the judicial system in the media i was in johannesburg south africa on the day of the tenth anniversary of apartheid that anniversary came because god's people worked for god's kingdom years before i was in moscow i was worshiping in a church filled to capacity a church that had been an underground church just just shortly before and i was there right after the fall of the berlin wall and i saw the front row filled with women uh, just row after row, the first four, five, six rows just stacked with women. They were all wearing scarves, and they were singing with this passion and this intensity that was just captivating to me. And I, they kind of all were sitting though in like one great big voter block. And so I leaned over to the pastor, and I said through my interpreter, "Who are these? Who are these women? What's what's what is going on here?" And I'll never forget the answer. He said, "Those are the women who prayed and then lived." communism out of russia i've stood next to those who rescue sex traffic children from the philippines uh, the brothels in the philippines i've driven around at night in the, in the cars looking and seeing the stark seedy nightlife of that place and where they do these interventions and in rescuing these children out from those hell holes i've stood in places like zambia in africa Uh, where an entire generation of parents has been wiped out by the AIDS crisis, leaving behind AIDS orphans just literally wandering around the dirt paths. The kingdom is meant to come. Which means that the real Christian is always a revolutionary. They're always a radical. In the best sense, they are always dangerous. At least that's the plan. You know, in the ancient world, the influence of Christians brought a stop to infanticide, ended slavery, liberated women, established orphanages and created schools and hospitals. During the medieval era, Christianity kept classical culture alive through the copying of manuscripts and the building of libraries and the invention of colleges and universities. In the modern era that just ended, Christians led the way in the development of science political, and economic freedom, and provided what is arguably the greatest source of inspiration for art and literature and music the world has ever known. What will those who follow Christ in our day do? The great danger is that they'll do nothing. So how is that prevented? Well, only through something that no one can give you, nobody can do for you, it's only something that you can bring to bear on your life in concert with the living God. And that is the commitment, the resolve that you're going to make history. And I don't think that there's a single person here who doesn't want to do that in one form or another. You want your one and only life to count and to have significance, But what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that entail? What steps would you take to do that? I want to take a look at what has to be one of the most stirring events in all of the recorded history of the Bible. It revolves around a young woman by the name of Esther. Esther was a Jewish woman. She was living in Persia, a descendant of those Jews who had been carried away into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Knowing that sociopolitical background isn't as important as understanding a few other things. She was an orphan. Uh, Her parents had died when she was only a child. And so she ended up being raised by her cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai, good man, godly man. And he loved her and he cared for her and he raised her as if she was his own daughter. And she grew up to be drop-dead gorgeous, Uh, a very beautiful woman. In fact, she was so physically beautiful that when the king of Persia searched the land for a wife, they ran really, in essence, uh, a nationwide survey of the bachelorette version, and she won. She won the whole thing, uh, the beauty contest, and she was selected to be the queen. Though no one in the king's palace suspected she was a Jew. Because Mordecai said, you know, it might be good to keep that one a secret. Well, then an evil man named Haman appeared on the scene, and he gained the king's confidence. He was just a worm, slimy, conniving kind of person, hyper-ego. In fact, uh, he worked his way up to such a high position in the government that he kind of talked the king into commanding all the royal officials to bow down to him wherever he traveled. And everybody did, except Mordecai. Mordecai would bow down only to God and that infuriated Haman and just insulted his pride, which led him to devise a plan to not only kill Mordecai, that wasn't enough for Haman. No, he was going to wipe out the entire Jewish race because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So here's what he did. He started this campaign to deceive the king into believing all kinds of horrific things about the Jews who were living in his kingdom. He convinced him that the Jews were subversive and revolutionary and undermining, that they were responsible for all the crime and everything that was going on that was bad. And once he had the king all exercised and worked up, he convinced him to sign an edict into law that would reward anyone who killed a Jew with large amounts of money. I mean, Haman wasn't dumb. He knew that if people would be financially rewarded, if they could put a bounty on a Jewish person, and that the king would sign off that if you took that person's life and got the bounty, you would not get in trouble, Well, it wouldn't be long before all of the Jews would be hunted down and killed. So if you thought Hitler was the first person who designed some type of Holocaust idea, uh, he took his teaching points from Haman. Now, with all of that in mind, let's see what happened next, and let's begin to discover what Esther's life has to teach us about making a difference with our own. I'm going to begin reading in the book of Esther in the Old Testament, in the fourth chapter, the first verse. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because... No one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. And every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting and weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the great square of the city in front of the king's gates. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, beg for mercy, plead with him for her people. Now, let me stop there. Because we already have our first key to making history. Opportunity. Opportunity. Esther suddenly found herself not only in a unique position of influence, but with a unique situation that allowed her to make a difference. And Mordecai said, okay, here's the situation, here's the opportunity. Seize it. Rise to this. She's not alone. In your life, you will have countless opportunities presented to you by God To do something significant with your one and only life. At various points in times, God will inject moments into the ebb and flow of your life to do something remarkable, something life-changing, even world-altering. Moments in time that are divine in nature, that are supernatural in potential, and that are eternal in significance. The Bible even has a word for them. They're called... Kairos moments. Now this is an idea that is often lost in our world, but it was keenly felt in ages past. The ancient Greek language had two principal words for time. One was chronos, where we get our word chronological, which extends to calendar time. It refers to days, weeks, months, and years. But then the Greeks had a second word for time. A word that meant something radically different, something deeper. Uh, it's so alien to our thinking, we don't even have an English equivalent for it. There's not an English word for this. Kairos had to do with the quality of time. It was a moment that was pregnant with eternal significance and possibility. It was a moment when we are confronted with a choice or a decision or a potential action that holds the deepest level of significance for who we are who we're becoming, and what our life impact can be. And that sense of time filled with opportunity, that idea runs deep throughout the biblical materials. For example, in the Old Testament, when the prophet Jeremiah talked about the life of the great pharaoh of Egypt, he spoke of him as being a king who was only heir. Just a loud noise. Just all talk. Why? Why? Because Jeremiah said he had missed his kairos, he had missed his moment, and therefore his life was inconsequential and insignificant. Then in the New Testament, there's an example toward the end of Jesus' life, where he comes to a ridge overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and the Bible says he just breaks down and weeps. The Bible says Jesus just becomes a wreck over the people and the lives that they're living. And then Jesus explains why he's such a wreck. He says, they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. You know, here I am getting ready in the last week of my life, and they're going to experience everything from, you know, the crucifixion and and the burial and the resurrection. They're going to miss the moment of God's coming to them. But he doesn't say simply he missed the time. The actual word he used is that they missed the kairos. Of God's coming to them. In many ways, your entire life on this planet is a kairos moment, every bit of it from birth to death. The question is whether you will see the opportunities that God brings your way to make a difference, because most people don't. Yeah, I once heard it put this way Imagine that across this stage there is a tight, taut wire, just a thin wire line going across the stage. And if you were to go on either side of these walls, you would see that the line, the line just keeps going. The wire just keeps going as far as you can see. And it doesn't just go to the edges of the campus. If you were to go out and follow it, it goes out beyond it into as far as you can see in either horizon, all the way out toward the mountains on either side, as far as you can go. In fact, if you could hop on a plane and follow it either way, it would still stretch out in front of you as far as you could see. And not just wrapping itself around the world, but actually extending out vertically throughout space and reaching beyond beyond our atmosphere and beyond our solar system and even beyond our universe in either direction. The line is never ending. Got the picture? Now let's say I take out a pen and I just walk up to the line kind of arbitrarily somewhere and I just make a scratch. Just make a little mark. That's your life in the scope of eternity. Now, anyone with any sense would live that life in light of the line, but we don't. We make the little scratch everything, and we lead scratch lives with scratch attitudes and scratch goals and scratch priorities, and as a result, make barely of a scratch of a difference. Well, the Kairos moment for Esther was clear. She was asked to use her influence and her position to respond to the potential annihilation of the entire Jewish race. Now, you would think that whenever God presents an opportunity to do something significant like that, the answer would automatically be yes. I mean, there's there's probably a lot of us that say, gosh, if God would only tell me what he wants to do, I would be so in on that. Really? You see... With every opportunity does come something else, a price tag. Whenever you come face-to-face with an opportunity to do something significant with your life, you also are going to come face-to-face with the sacrifice that is involved in doing what you have been asked by God to do. First comes the opportunity, then comes the cost. It was no different with Esther. See, there was a little rule back in those days in Persia Nobody could just go to the king, at least uninvited, unscheduled, unappointed, especially not a woman. Doesn't matter if you were the queen or not. If you did, it was considered a capital offense and the punishment was capital as well. Execution. Uh, This was not a cultural gray area in Persia. It was the law. So do you understand what Mordecai was saying to Esther? I think I've got a plan. It's a suicide mission for you, but I think it's a plan. So how did she respond? Verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned... The king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, did you catch that last line? You got to read a little bit between the lines there, but it isn't hard to read. Esther is saying, I think I got your plan. I think I understand you want me to use my queen leverage to not only approach him unasked for, but also to get him aware of the situation. But a little bit of internal marital news. He hasn't asked to see me for a month. He has not wanted to have sexual relations with me for 30 days. He has not wanted to dialogue with me for 30 days. He has not wanted to see my face for 30 days. I have no idea where I stand with him, but I'm starting to be a little worried. I, 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 I don't know if I've offended him or what, but I mean, a month. She's saying, look, I get the problem. I get the need. I see the opportunity. But do you understand? This is not a this is this is a suicide mission. There's not even an option of me coming out of this one alive. This isn't about just me losing my title and privileges and money and prestige and perks. This is my life. I'll be killed. And that's the second stage of the journey to making history. First, there is the opportunity. Second, we face the cost of acting on it. Just about every single person who has made the decision to give themselves over to God in such a way that they made a difference in the world could tell you of a moment where they came face to face with the cost involved in that decision. And at that moment, everything was on the line. Which is why so many people lead scratch lives. The opportunity comes, they count the cost, and then let the cost count them out. They see the price tag, they see the risk, the inconvenience, and they may not say it quite this, you know, bluntly, but it's as if they say to themselves, you know, I'm not about to do anything that would affect the quality of my life. I mean, take a risk at having less than I have now. Add something to my already insanely overcrowded schedule. Put my career, my reputation on the line. Bypass building my life and my choices and my time around something other than me. What are you thinking? I I want significance. I mean, I want that as much as anybody. I just don't want significance at the cost of sacrifice. But what if there is no significance apart from sacrifice? What if they're two sides of the same coin, inextricably intertwined and inseparable from each other? I ran across an old book that has now become a prized part of my library. It was a biography simply titled Borden of Yale, told of a man named William Borden, who went to Yale University as an undergraduate student and then a Uh, Afterward, became a missionary uh, candidate for China. He was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. And so he was already a multimillionaire by the time of his high school graduation. As a graduation gift from his family, he was sent on a trip around the world upon his high school graduation. And as he traveled throughout Asia and the Middle East and Europe, something began to happen to him. He he sensed this growing and experienced this growing concern for the lost and the hurting of the world. And so when he was about two-thirds of the way or so around this trip, he wrote a letter home to his family. And he said, I do not want to take over the family business. I'm going to leave that to others. I'm going to turn away from that life. And I've decided that I want to prepare my life for the mission field. And after making that decision and sending off the letter, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Well, then he went on to college at Yale University, but with a new sense of purpose and determination. During his first semester there, he began a movement among the students that spread throughout the campus to simply meet and read their Bible and, and pray. And By the end of his first year, 150 fellow freshmen were meeting in one of these weekly Bible studies. By the time he was a senior, get this, 1,000 out of Yale's then total population of 1,300, one thousand out of the 1,300 were joining together in one of Borden's groups. Beyond the campus, Borden founded what was called the Yale Hope Mission to reach out to those on the streets of New Haven, but always in view of his sense of call to foreign missions, which soon had a focus on Muslims in China. Well, after college graduation, he was offered again The family business, the whole Borden, you know, uh, multi-million dollar enterprise. He was also approached by many other organizations for numerous high-paying jobs. He declined them all again in order to pursue his life calling. And at that point, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Under no reserves, he wrote no retreats. Well, Borden next went on to graduate school at Princeton where he was ordained to the ministry. After he finished his studies, he set sail for China through the China Inland Mission, stopping first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted cerebrospinal meningitis. In less than a month, William Borden was dead. He was 26 years old. But before his death, knowing that the steps of his life would take him no further he had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Under no reserves, under no retreats, he wrote, no regrets. No regrets. How does a story like that hit you? A waste? Do you feel like, oh, what a tragedy? Or does something within you stir and begin to think that maybe that was a life truly lived? What if the truth is that that was one of the most significant consequential lives ever lived on planet earth? And it screams out a life lesson. That if you lead a safe life, you will never lead a significant life. And that the duration of your years, that means nothing. It's what you do with the years you have. And that a life that ends at 26 could be worth more and be more consequential and more celebrated in heaven and echo throughout time more than a life that leads to 126. You were safe, but you were never significant. Well, there you have Esther, given an opportunity, a Kairos moment by God but wrestling with the reality of the sacrifice that would be involved. So what happens next? Well, the third great thing that is always presented to a maker of history, a direct challenge to act in the face of the risk and in light of the opportunity. Let me read what happened next. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai didn't mince words, did he? But he shouldn't have. This was big time stuff. I mean, the stakes were high. History was going to be made one way or another. It needed to be made. So Mordecai got right in her face. He laid it out. He said, listen, this is your moment. Are you going to do something significant with your life or not? If you don't, make no mistake. God will search the land. He will find somebody who will. But right now... It could be you. It could be you. Do you see the challenge that God brings to a life? Do you see the challenge he brings to your life? I had a defining moment with this at a fairly young age. I was a college student. I was working in Colorado for the summer. One weekend I went to see a movie. I had the weekend off and I went, drove in and I saw a movie that had just been released It was the second installment of the original Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back. All right, do the math, it dates me. As you know only too well, the entire series is about the cosmic battle between good and evil, with the first trilogy focusing on a young farm boy named Luke, who gets swept up in the galactic rebellion against the Empire. Now this may sound very silly to you, but it's okay because I'm secure with myself. But seeing that movie long, long ago in a city far, far away was a defining moment for me. I walked out of that theater struck to the depth of my soul. I remember sitting in the parking lot afterward in my car thinking, that's what I want out of life. I want to be caught up in the sweep of history. I want to be in the center of things. I want to be making a difference. I want to be at the heart of the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. I mean, my heart was almost breaking at the thought of a life of insignificance. But I remember thinking it was a flippant movie. Where am I ever going to be a part of anything like that in the real world? Something bigger than myself like that. And then I'll remember, it just struck me. It just struck me. That's what God's invitation to life is all about. There is a galactic struggle going on. I could be a player. Suddenly it hit me that I could give my life to something that would live on long after I was gone and that was bigger than I was. Where what I did mattered and could impact all of history even into eternity. There was this reality of another realm beyond all that I'd known. The spiritual war and struggle for people's souls. Eternal consequences were at stake. It was about good and bad and right and wrong heaven and hell and it became so clear to me i could give my life to that i could put myself into mission mode and commit to being as dangerous of a player for god as i could and i resolved to do just that and it changed everything nothing in my life was the same from that day forward see as mordecai said to esther there will be makers of history God will find people to make a difference in this world. The question is whether or not it will be you. That's the question. And that's the challenge. So how did Esther respond? Did she hear it and kind of blow it off? Did she get temporarily kind of, you know, excited and then let it die pretty quickly? Or was she deeply transformed? Let's find out. Verse 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king. Even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. (laughs) Wow. You know, when an opportunity from God comes and the cost is counted and the challenge is heard and then accepted, you realize you leave a mark for all of heaven to see? That you make history? Every time. Let me tell you how it played out for Esther. When she went to the king... Trembling and afraid, fully expecting to lose her life, she found out that not only did the king not kill her, when he found out what was going on, he killed Haman. And then he took Mordecai and put him in Haman's place. And as a result, the Jewish people were saved, a people that would one day produce a man named Jesus, who I hear was savior of the world. Not a bad day's work. I don't know if you remember the movie The Gladiator. Guys went to see it to see Russell Crowe fight. Girls went to it to see Russell Crowe. Um, <laughs> the actual plot chronicled one of the most savage, decadent periods in all of human history. And in that movie, you see how bloody and barbaric the games themselves were. But one story the movie did not tell is how the games eventually ended. Let me tell you that story. In the fourth century, there lived an Asiatic monk who spent most of his life in a remote community of prayer, raising vegetables for the cloister kitchen. That was his job. Then one day, this little monk, whose name was Telemachus, felt that God wanted him to go to Rome the capital of the world, the busiest, wealthiest, biggest city on the planet. Telemachus had absolutely no idea why God wanted him to go there. He was absolutely terrified at the thought, but as he prayed, it was just unmistakable. He was supposed to go. So he went. And he arrived at the city with his little sack on his back, which held everything that he owned. And he found this huge crowd of people uh, moving toward the largest building that he had ever seen or even imagined. It was the Colosseum. What he didn't know was that the crowd was going to see the gladiator contests. Telemachus joined them, not knowing where he was going or why or even what God was up to with all this. And so he went in and he took a seat up at the top rafters and he saw the great warriors march into the arena and turn to the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. And he thought to himself about to die. Well, it didn't take long for the little monk to realize that this huge crowd of people had come to cheer men on to murder one another. Human lives for entertainment. And as the horror of it all just hit him, just just out of reflex, just out of reaction, he just jumped up in his seat and he shouted, In the name of Christ, stop! Well, the fighting began, of course. No one would hear the voice of that little man. They couldn't hear it. Well, Telemachus just was in reaction mode. He wasn't even thinking. He ran down the stone steps. He bounded over the edge onto the sandy floor of the arena. The crowd started clapping and cheering and whistling because they thought this was part of the entertainment. Oh, this is a new one—a kind of a um, someone in a monk's Christian robe kind of thing. Okay, this will be kind of cool. We'll see what they're going to do with this. And almost playfully, a gladiator, thinking it was part of the entertainment too, kind of took his shield and batted little Telemachus away And uh, from his legs. The crowd loved it. But Telemachus was running between the fighters, and he'd run between two of them, put his hands up between them, and he'd say, in the name of Christ, stop. And he'd be batted away, and he'd run between two more, in the name of Christ, stop. Well, it wasn't funny anymore. Uh, he was upsetting the contest. So the crowd tired of it and said, okay, run him through. And that began the chant, run him through, run him through. So a gladiator took his sword and did just that. He slashed his blade into the stomach of the little monk. And before he died, laying in his own blood, Telemachus said once more, in the name of Christ, stop. Well, then a strange thing occurred. As a gladiator who killed him just stood and stared at him. And the crowd focused on the still form on the sandy floor. The arena grew deathly quiet. It was as if suddenly everybody realized at one time this was not part of the entertainment. This was real. This was real. And suddenly the horror of everything they'd been about seemed to just become clear to them. Like that little monk's body became a mirror to reflect the depth of the depravity of their lives. And in that silence, someone on the top tier just stood up and got up and left. And then another. And then another. And then whole sections began to just file out. And gladiators laid down their swords and their shields and just walked out of the Colosseum, and soon the entire stadium was empty. And that was the last gladiator contest in the history of the Roman Colosseum. Never again did men kill each other for a crowd's entertainment on those grounds. Little Telemachus became a maker of history. And so can you. You can become an agent and an instrument of God's great plan. See, all he wants to know is if you're going to see the opportunity before you. If you'll count the cost of sacrifice and not let it count you out and respond to the challenge. But if you're living in such a way as to make the cost of involvement and the sacrifice of contributing everything... If the challenge of God tends to fall over and over again on deaf ears. If you're going to walk out of here today and have a nice lunch and by 2, 3, 4 o'clock everything we've talked about is going to be drifting away. And you're just going to be looking for the next installment either Wednesday or Sunday that will kind of titillate you spiritually but not change you internally. I only have one thing to say to you. In the name of Christ. Stop it. Stop it. Time's too short. The day's too dark. The revolution is too strong. And Christ's call too clear. Get on the front lines. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to have anything at all to do with your name and your cause and your great mission, your grace and your salvation. Help us to step out and be counted and to spend our lives fully. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Albuquerque featuring our guest speaker, Dr. James Emery White. Were you challenged by what you learned? Let us know. Email my story at calvaryabq.org. And just a reminder, you can give financially to this work at calvaryabq.org/give. Thank you for listening to this message from Calvary Albuquerque.